Marvin Goldfried is a distinguished professor of psychology at Stony Brook University, where he helped develop the graduate program in clinical psychology. He's the co-founder of the Society for the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration. Alan Francis is a professor of psychiatry and chair emeritus at Duke and was chair of the DSM-4 task force. Marvin describes the evolution of his psychotherapy orientation as psychodynamic, behavioral, CBT, and eventually integrative. He practices, teaches, and supervises what works clinically using direct and indirect evidence base. Alan describes his approach to psychotherapy as whatever works or no one size fits all. He was trained and taught at the Columbia University Psychoanalytic Center, but remains equally interested in brief, supportive, cognitive, behavioral, interpersonal, and family therapies. Please enjoy this week's episode. Welcome and good morning. Uh, This is Talk Therapy. I am Marvin Goldfried and my esteemed colleague is... Alan Francis. Good morning, Marvin. Morning, Alan. Good morning from rainy California. I know. Well, it's it's not that the rainy, it's flooding California. That's the issue. Well, the problem is that the state and I guess the country hasn't figured out a way yet to take this precious water and store it in aquifers. So we have these enormous floods that waste the supply and the uh, system should be developed whereby it's, we allow controlled flooding so that the water can be saved when we need it. I guess you should consult the uh, history of the Roman Empire. I think they had some ways of, uh, of doing it. It is remarkable how backward we are in certain basic things uh, like, like saving water. I read something this week about cement, Roman cement had within it uh, packages of calcium calcium minerals so that whenever it rained, it was self-correcting. And that's why Roman cement has lasted for 2,000 years, whereas our cement lasts for 100 at most. We live in a culture where old stuff is is not respected. Kind of like like you and me, Marvin. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on. So the topic today, and I love the title, um, uh, it's uh, metaphors, the poetry of therapy. And um, it's nice that you put in the poetry. I like that. I, I had a dry title, The Role of Metaphors in Therapy. So you're, you're the poet of the duo here. Okay, you start us and I'll try to chime in. So let me tell you, tell you um, a little uh, tale about metaphors. As you know, some years ago, we were doing process research where we were comparing relationally oriented therapy with CBT. And we wanted to see what the therapists focused on. So we developed this coding scheme, you know, so we could say, oh, if the therapist says, how did you feel about that? That would be coded emotion. Or what did you think was gonna happen? That would be recorded thought. So that was pretty easy and we, did research on that with a data set from uh, the UK that was manual driven. And we had no trouble at all coding. And then we applied it to a data set of master therapists doing therapy in regular practice. These were people who were um, uh, referred to us as by people within either the CBT or the uh, relationally dynamic orientation as somebody they would send a relative to. 
So we wanted to get good therapists. And they sent us um, tapes and we tried to code them. And it was much harder to code because they kept using these metaphors. How do you code a metaphor for thought or feeling or, or action when they say something like, well, if you're going through hell, keep going. And patience, this helps patience. Uh, I think it was Winston Churchill that's, that originally said that. People find this helpful, but what are they focusing on? Is it a thought? Is it a feeling? Is it action? So we, we would have to really decide in a group how to code some of these things. So the interesting thing is, in ordinary practice, a good therapists and ex good experienced therapists use metaphors a lot. And then the question is why? So back to you. Well, I, I think the answer is pretty clear. Uh, we've discussed already, we, and we've set the, the, the foundation for the answer. We've discussed in many different contexts how important is the therapeutic relationship and related to that, how important is the corrective emotional experience mm -hmm. that patient can patients can have within that therapeutic relationship. So that, that's one piece. Next piece, human beings think in poetry as much as they think in prose, that metaphor is built into the way we see the world the way we express ourselves. When you look at the first writings in any culture, once you get past commercial writing, the first thing that cultures develop is poetry. Um, poetry is a way of singing the songs of the culture. It's much easier to remember poetry than to remember prose. Mm -hmm. we, Homer's Odyssey, because it was sung for 500 years in, in poetry, not in prose. When we dream, we dream in metaphor. The basic sort of way our minds work is poetic and metaphoric. We speak in metaphors constantly every day. We'll be doing it, I'm sure, today in this session without even thinking about it. We speak in poetry to some degree. And I, I can picture therapies that occasionally work that are prosaic and dull. I can picture certain types of problems, certain types of therapists, certain types of patients. In very special cases, I can picture therapy working, even if it's dull and prosaic. But I think most therapy, most great therapy, is conducted mostly in prose, but every once in a while, those magic moments. And the magic moments are almost always poetic and almost always include metaphor. So I'm not the least surprised that you have ordinary therapists following manuals doing dull therapy and easy to code. And that you have your great therapist somehow or other tapping into that emotional wellspring of poetry that almost everyone has and is just waiting there to be exposed and to, and to make for a much richer therapeutic relationship, much greater corrective emotional experiences and better outcomes. You're very poetic in how you put this. And I'm trying to operationalize this. And I'm trying to say, well, what, is this, what does this really mean if we, if we talk about what we know about um, pathology, what we know about emotion? So let me give you my understanding, because you're talking, and then I, in my head, there's this little translation program that's, that's going on. And that's what I love about you, Marvin. What's that? That you, you can take things that I say that are vague and, and co-ed, 
and you can find a language for it that can be passed on to others. Much, it's very hard for me to supervise poetry, but once you operationalize it, it's easier for, to use in supervision. So you think I'll ever convert you? Or you will lose those? I'm not great at it. That's the problem. I'm, I'm not naturally great at it. I think that you are naturally great at it. It's not, I think, training so much as the way we I, see I think, the, I think a lot of teaching, you know, 50, what is this? To translate what I said into, into prose. Yeah. So, so here's, here's the thing. People, um, people's pathology, but what is this, what is the same, what is the common factor in poetry and in pathology? And I think it's emotion. So metaphors elicit emotion. Right. And if you can elicit emotion in session, you are then getting the pathological meaning structure of the patient activated in the session. I, I like that a lot, but I think I wouldn't underestimate that they also provide intellectual understanding. Oh yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not denying that, no. No, the, the wonderful combination. It, it's the combination of the two. It's the emotional meaning that they get in touch with in the session and metaphors help them. And then the intellectual, the pardon the expression, observing ego right, right. comes into play, or the metacognitive recognition that, oh my goodness, this is what's going on. So I think it's really tied into the role of emotion in therapy. And I think this is where my CBT colleagues, some of them at least, fall short. Because, you know, if you say to somebody, okay, what's the pathological thought that you have? Well, it's an intellectualized communication of the pathological thought. It's not the pathological thought that operates. So in session, too many CBT therapists are talking intellectually or, or looking for intellectual awareness without the emotional component. I think let's take the simple example you gave earlier, uh, the, the uh, metaphor. It's, it's like you're going through hell now. If Say you're again? going through hell, keep going. Yeah. So it, it, that's two parts. Yeah. One is it's like you're going through hell. It's a metaphor. Yes. And two, it's the advice and encouragement, reversal of hopelessness. Keep going. You can do it. Yes, and accept I, I, I often use the same, in the same situation, I talk about the metaphor of Job, the person's experiencing the trials of Job, and, and to how, how will you be able to endure it? Break that down. Why does that help? Why is it better to say it that way than a more prosaic way? Exactly the way we started this discussion. Because we had to break it down in order to code it with our coding system. So if you're going through hell, well, what is that? That's probably emotion. Keep going. But in a sense, that's action. Keep walking. But it also implies an acceptance. So if you're in a bad situation and you can't do anything about it, you need to accept it. So what would you want to say to a patient? Listen, you're in a difficult situation and you have to just accept it. Or if you're going through hell, keep going. I prefer the metaphor. 
Yeah. And, and plus, there's also an implication. If you keep going, you may get past this. That's right. That's right. There's a little bit, there's a tinge of, of optimism uh, in there. And that's a hell of a lot more therapeutic than just... Yeah. Now, why why do you prefer the metaphor? Because, well, to, to, there are two reasons. One is it brings up the problem within the session, or it, it, it refers to the problem together with, with its emotional session, uh, emotional uh, components, right in the session. So you, you can work with what's going on right now. You don't have to work about talk about last week or next week. So it's in session focus. Uh, and also, patients are more likely to remember this. I, I think there are two other reasons why it's wonderful. One is that it's, it shows your empathy. Mm -hmm. if you describe it in prose terms. It never has the same richness of, of sharing shared feeling as if you can convert right. it into a, um, a metaphor. The metaphor means that you're there with the person. Yeah. And that you understand them and that you're able to feel what they're feeling in a way that dry speech never would. I think the other thing is that the metaphors universalize it, that patients often feel uniquely damned and all alone and very different. And if there's a metaphor that fits them, it means they also fit a group that's also experienced this, that they, they haven't invented the feeling they haven't invented the problem. They're part of a universal metaphor to describe the situation. So interesting. <laughs> the fact that the therapist says this means that they probably have experienced this. So again, it's empathy. I'm not alone. There's acceptance. Um, I'm going to hold on to this. And patients have, that I've used this with have said they found it very helpful. Because what happens is when they, between session, when they're going through the difficult time and they say, I feels like I'm going through hell. Oh my gosh, yes, keep going. So they remember it and the emotion in life links up to the fact that there was an emotional arousal within the session with a way of retrieving this good advice. Yeah, but one of the ways I think of this is that if you suppose in your process research, you added up all the words that were said in a particular uh, therapy, mm -hmm. it'd be interesting to think of you see, see someone for, for a year, how many words do you say to them during that year? And how many of those words will ever be remembered by the patient? Yeah, that's not as if everything has to be remembered to, to actually have an impact on the person's life. Lots of things may have been said that were useful that don't get remembered. But I have a feeling intuitively that if someone remembers something from therapy, that that had a particularly important um, impetus and change. And people usually don't remember most of what happened in their therapies. When you ask people well, what happened, you know, what was the most memorable, they usually have a few memories, a few nodal points in the therapy that they remember that really mattered to them enough to mm -hmm. be remembered. And everything about the history of literature tells us that people remember poetry better than they remember prose. So a poetic statement that really touches someone emotionally right. is much more likely to be member, memorable, remembered and acted upon in the future. Well, there's other things that are more likely to be remembered. And again, um, I'm now going to research in cognitive science. Um, there's been a lot of research on memory and what helps people remember. 
And there's a concept called the memory peg. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Very valuable. I think I think of this a lot when I do therapy. The memory peg is something that you can keep in mind that helps you to remember. It's kind of like you you have a peg and you put the content of what you want to remember on that peg. And if you have a lot of these pegs existing in your memory, you can remember a lot of things. And the research that's done on this is an association type thing, which also has a visual component. So you, if you want to make up a, a shopping list, you can enumerate the items on the list, one, two, three, four. Now, if you associate one with buns, like a little roll, one with bun, two with shoe, three with tree, those are your memory pegs. And then what you hook onto this memory peg is something you want to remember. One bun. Oh, I want to buy um, uh, some butter. Oh, butter on a, on a bun. So the first thing on my shopping list is butter. One bun, butter. Two, shoe. Okay, I need to get um, a pair of gloves. So I get an image of a pair of gloves sitting in my shoe. Three, tree. Um, oh, I need some oranges. So there's an orange tree. That's really interesting. So, so metaphors, I was saying poetry is more memorable. You're giving it another language. You're saying that, that metaphors and poetry are memory pegs. Yes. Yes. Or I like memory pegs. I don't know that you know people have done actual research on, on meta. Well, they probably have done some research. Memory pegs are a good metaphor. <laughs> Touche. There's one other thing that I think is, is worth pointing out, and that is that therapy works best when the therapist gets the patient's attention. Mm -hmm. Therapy works least well when it's a kind of routinized, we're just going through the motions. And you have to earn the patient's attention. It's not something that you can assume you because you have money in the bank, you'll have it for that next session or the next thing you say, that you have to earn the patient's attention every minute, every time you say something. And the more vividly, the more poetically, the more originally, the more um, vividly you're able to say things, the more you keep the patient's attention, the more you keep them focused on the session, the more they feel the session's an important part of the life, their life, the more likely they are to change their behavior, both yeah. within the session and outside the session. Right, and if you get their attention, and then you make the intervention very salient, they're going to remember it. And so, so here, an example of this are, are uh, exercises that come from Gestalt therapy, where you act out certain kinds of things. Uh, and I've done this with, with, a patient, with patients. So I, I have a, an exercise that I use for acceptance, where somebody's having trouble accepting something. And it's, it, it could be a life situation. It could be a characteristic of a significant other. So I would say, and this has to be done in a very good therapy alliance, because it's very weird. I would say... Let's do a little exercise, okay? To, to, that might be helpful, okay? I've never been happy with the size of my office. I'd like it to be a little bit larger. So would you get up 
bear with me. This is crazy. But bear with me. So they get up and I say, could you push your hand, put your hands on the wall? Now, could you push the wall so my office gets bigger? And of course, they look at me and I said, try it. Stay with me. So they push and they say, this is silly. <laughs> Why is it silly? Well, because I can't, I can't push this wall. I said, well, no, no. Keep trying. You're not pushing long enough. So push, continue pushing harder and long enough. And they say, I can't, you know. We're not pushing hard enough. And they keep, and they, and they say, and get frustrated and say, no matter how long or hard I push, I'm not going to move this wall. And then the intervention is silence with a knowing look. And the patient goes, oh my God, I guess. Yeah, you, you sound like a Zen master to give it another metaphor. Okay. Yeah. But if it's a technique that works, that's fine, you know. So yeah. there was another example. Go ahead. No, I'm just thinking that how much of uh, philosophy is done in parables, how much of religion is done in parables. Yeah. Again, it, it helps support what I was saying at the beginning, that we tend to think this way. This is the way humans think. It's not as if you have to teach people, teach patients to appreciate metaphors. That it's 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 the way humans are, are made, and it's a wonder. I mean, how did this happen? We're all artists in a way, especially when we dream. We all think metaphorically that somehow or other there's high survival value in the ability to to speak and to appreciate uh, po poetic speech. Right. And how about this? Which is exactly your point. Our patients sometimes use metaphors in session, so. When they use that metaphor, the question is, is that a helpful metaphor or a, or, or a problematic metaphor? Give you a couple of examples. One patient who was very conscientious and compulsive, but, but not very smart and all. His job involved a lot of troubleshooting. And he just said, I don't look forward to the day. It's so stressful. I feel like I'm walking through a minefield. So we played with that metaphor because walking through a minefield, what does that say? It says there's danger and I have no control over it. Yeah. That's a very powerful It's a powerful metaphor and it caused stress. So I said, let's find another metaphor. And we dialogue back and forth until we find a better metaphor. Yeah, batting practice. At the Wait, let, me, let me finish this, okay? Batting practice was replaced the minefield. Each day is batting practice. And I'm going to use my skill. And I don't have to be successful all the time as long as I do the best I can. If you hit one out of four, if you hit one time out of four, or one time out of three. That's right. You're a major so leaguer. He came, he came up with this metaphor, and he said it makes him feel so much better. I think this is remarkable, and it hadn't occurred to me until we, you just brought it up. That it, it's not just the metaphors we use in the sessions. It's our ability to respond to the metaphors the patients use right. and to be alert to whatever they're metaphorical. Exactly. exactly. Be a nodal point in the treatment. That when the patient uses a, motor, a, a metaphor, it, it's a, an important window into their soul, just as dreams are. 
It's not just dreams of the railroad to the unconscious. Metaphors are too. Mm -hmm. So what do you think of this one? Um, and this is more of a gestalt exercise. Uh, this person came in and was having difficulty doing their dissertation and was just having a lot of problems and was ashamed and came in and said, I didn't do anything. I walks in to the session. I feel like Oh, I feel like a, I'm a failure, I'm a dog walking in with a tail between my legs. And I just want to crawl under, under something and be safe. This is a person whose pattern was avoidance. So I thought deeply and I figured I'm going to take the risk. And I said, um, you want to crawl under something? That table over there. <laughs> I have the lamp is is not bad. See if see if it works for you. <laughs> and they got under there, and I said, "How does it feel?" Oh, it's so much safer. I said, "Oh, good, okay, stay. So let's continue." And then after about ten minutes, they said, "You know, I'm not feeling it. I'm not, I'm getting all cramps all over." And I said, "Yeah, but it's safe." <laughs> And we did the therapy that way verbally, and eventually they came out and then used this. This is the kind of thing you don't forget. You don't forget. That's exactly what's on it. You'll never forget that moment. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting we do this with everybody. You know, there's a distinction between the principle of change, um, and that is an emotionally laden um, uh, event that gets the patient's attention, to use your words, and gets them and that could be therapeutic and gets them to remember it and serves as a memory tank. And then they just use that. And some people it works, some people it doesn't. Some therapists would do that. Other therapists would never do that. Yeah, I think the uh, metaphor is also related to sense of humor because sense of humor mm -hmm. is often metaphoric. What's funny is because of the disjunctions in the metaphors. And the whole thing ties up to, I think, getting the patient's attention, showing that you're bringing some understanding to the situation that wasn't there before, doing it in a way that has an immediate emotional impact, but also in a way that's likely to be remembered after the session, hopefully for that week, maybe for years, and that you're always trying to find the right metaphor. I, I tell people I supervise, you never know what you'll say that the person will find immeasurably valuable. Right. It's hard to predict in advance what will, what will be important. But what it does do is keep the therapist on his or her toes to always be thinking about what can I say, what in this material, what in our interaction at this moment, what in the patient's feelings, what in my feelings about the patient can lead to that magic moment, can lead to that sort of metaphorical joining of the of the um, of the souls and the spirits of the two people in the room that will make for change. The souls and the spirits. Uh, metaphors are the window to the soul. <laughs> um Okay, so I think maybe a good combination is to intervene poetically, but but think logically. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, a, a therapy is just poetic, without having a, a an underlying 
purpose and rationale exactly. will likely lead to very exciting sessions and no change. Yeah. I've had the experience with some of the most interesting patients I've ever had. All the sessions seemed absolutely wonderful. They were stimulating and wonderful and there was no change because metaphors can also be defensive. They can also be a way of warding off real feeling, of not getting in touch with what really matters. Mm -hmm. They can be playful. They can be distractions. So it's not as if poetic sessions by themselves make for useful change. It's a poetic session within a context and with a purpose and with a rationale and with behaviors that actually change how the person is dealing with you and with their life. If they're just having fun with you and you're just having fun with them, that may be fun, but not doesn't necessarily lead to change. Alan, you're a behaviorist after all, doing a functional functional analysis of metaphor. It's not exactly. just metaphors per se, but what's the function? Great. Well, I think our time is up. Yeah, well, I just want to say, Marvin, every once in a while I worry we're going to run out of things to say, but I keep on learning from you every week. So, so long I, as learned, I learned... learned. I learned from you. I've never liked poetry before, but I think I'm beginning. <laughs> this is not the beginning, but this is ongoing, um, wonderful uh, friendship. Stay safe and stay dry, and I hope things are okay with uh, the situation. And no rain in California. Okay. Bye bye. Until next. Bye bye.